Leslie Manukian here with another episode of Conversations on Health Freedom. And today I am delighted to bring to you Jeffrey Tucker, the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, which focuses on bringing voluntary interactions between individuals and groups to the public. The motive force of Brownstone Institute was the global crisis created by the policy responses to the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. Jeffrey is also senior economics columnist for the Epoch Times and an author of 10 books, including Liberty or Lockdown and thousands and thousands of articles in the scholarly and popular press. Um, I am literally just thrilled to have him here with us today and um, to begin a I hope it will be a very, very thought-provoking conversation. But Jeffrey, welcome so much to the show. Well, it's so nice to be here, Leslie. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's I, I'm absolutely thrilled. Well, I should congratulate you on winning the great uh, mask uh, case because that was what really began, I think, the whole sort of crumbling of the ed edifice. You know, I, I think you were fortunate to have a, a, a thoughtful and somewhat brave judge in that case, but. Uh, her opinion really does stand as a kind of uh, monument of, 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 you know, public health, good public health thinking uh, that really took on that Public Health Services Act of 1944, exposing the fact that, you know, you can't as a CDC just do whatever you want because some, <laughs> some, some, some people passed a law in 1944, the very first law under which we had the quarantine power at all in this country, really. Uh, at the federal level, there's been quarantines before, but you know that was a quarantine. But it was she, as she proved, it was impossible to come up with any rationale by which the CDC could just randomly impose these mandates uh, for people on buses and trains and and planes and that sort of thing. So, and anyway, it's a tribute to your tenacity and and perspicacity, I guess you could say uh -huh. uh, that that case went through. And it really emboldened a lot of litigants around the country and judges too. Yeah. You know, Jeffrey, the whole reason that I prosecuted that case was because I felt that if we were going to see that ground, that mm. the CDC could tell us to healthy people what yeah. we had to wear on our faces right. and that they could do so absent adequate science um, that there was no limit to their authority and it had to be challenged. It was the proverbial, you know, tip of the spear and it really had to be challenged. And as you know, we're in um, DOJ is appealing the case. Yeah. But um, one of the judges actually said that the case was a slam dunk in terms of CDC violating the Administrative Procedure Act, which is just, you know, blatantly clear for anyone who cares to pay attention. Um, right. We'll see what happens. Um, we're very optimistic and um We'll just wait and see what the judges have to say. Well, people really do need to understand what the response to the decision was, which is very revealing. The CDC did not attempt to uh, claim that the masks were achieving their great public health goals or anything like that. They weren't, weren't unable to cite any science. They just simply said, you can't do this to us. Uh, they actually said they actually said it was really interesting. They did not argue this. So when they first issued their rule, all they said was, we all know there's a public health emergency and therefore we're going to force masks on people. That mm -hmm. kind of boilerplate statement is not a um, right. reasonable method right. for which they must properly justify any rule. And they didn't do that. They That's didn't. one. But the other thing is that they, they are forcing this on healthy people. Yeah. It didn't have any science. And they, um, all they said was, you know, we want the power. Well, after actually, mm -hmm. after we filed, then they said, this is a sanitation measure. 
Uh-huh, uh-huh. did not did not note it as a sanitation measure beforehand. And if you look at the actual code, it specifically says there's a sentence and it says CDC is authorized to do things like fumigate, disinfect, isolate, quarantine, sanitize. And it specifically says animals and objects or properties yeah, yeah, in yeah. protection of human beings. It doesn't yeah. say that you can force a mask on a human being. Yeah, no, it does, it, 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 but that's the only thread that they had, right? If you're the CDC, you're making weird, arbitrary, despotic judgments, and then you have to dig, you know, dig around at a law and you run across this one word sanitation. Um, but I've wondered about this word sanitation for a while because a lot of the universities that had the mask mandates and everything, they were they came out of the sanitation departments, you know, of the bureaucracy. So I wondered if if they've been hanging their hats on that thing for a while. Uh, the whole thing is preposterous. And I don't know what the legislative history was behind the Public Health Services Act of 1944, but certainly uh, reading the the thing as it stands, you can't really come up with the rationale of, you know, for a government to arbitrarily slap a piece of clothing on your face, you know, every time you travel. It doesn't really make any sense. I don't think that that Public Health Services Act ever should have been passed in the first place. I mean, I, I would like to understand why it came to be in wartime of all times, you know, and in my lifetime, it's uh, that that power, some of those powers listed in there have, have, have been only invoked, I think, a couple of times, one of which, Leslie, you will be amused to hear that when I was a little kid, I used to love to keep pet turtles by my bedside. And a little, um, and a little. You had to. You did you have it. the little ones? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I little, did too. And they yeah. got banned from importation, right? <laughs> right under the Public Health Services Act of nineteen forty-four. Uh, and I remember just being furious because I it was like a joy of uh, as a kid because I had this little turtle pond next to my bed. Was, I'm so sorry. Generations of kids have been denied this great pleasure. But you have a little turtle, and you keep the water going. The turtle crawls around. You know, he looks around. You get a little tree, and you know, it exactly. was great. Palm trees. <laughs> a little palm tree and but then they would die and blah. so you go to the pet store and get a new one and that's just sort of what you did and mm-hmm. i went through two or three and then i went to the pet store and said i'm sorry we can't carry them and i was like what mm-hmm. oh the government you know has banned the importation of these things or the sale sale of these things on grounds that they have salmonella or something like that well, i never got salmonella what are you talking about i remember being very bitter you know, as a, as a young boy about this. So, hey, that began my war on the CDC. <laughs> Very interesting. So I had those, I had turtles too, Jeffrey. And I um, had the same little plastic enclosure with the little tree and all that. But I never actually found out that CDC had banned them until, I don't know, the last three years is when yeah, I read yeah. that. But I remember this when this happened. I remember thinking that, I don't know who this thing they're calling the government is, but I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's a really interesting um, and perhaps perfect segue to my first question, which is, how did you start caring about liberty at such a young age? Why was it important to you? And what was the sort of, what sparked this uh-huh. kind of passion in you? Well, I, I I had trained my entire life uh, in a music career. My father was a, a composer, musician, pianist, vocal instructor, and everything else. As an avocation, he was a historian primarily. And my mother was a, p- a pianist and a, a voice teacher. My brother is a professional musician. And so I kind of grew up in this world. I It was destined that I would be a musician in my entire life. 
And and by the time I was 17, I would I had already toured with the Gallimbardo Orchestra. I'd played with some of the best jazz uh, trombonists around and, and all these kind of things. And so uh, so when I went to, uh, to college, um, uh, I decided that I had to find some other profession, you know, because I, I felt like I'd already done the music thing. <laughs> it was already done. What else is there for me to do? So I just began to shop around for new new, new possibilities. And at the, at the age of 18, a lot of a lot of kids think, hey, you know, I can make out of my life whatever I want. I don't have to just do the thing I'm destined to do. Mm -hmm. So I found economics mainly because I thought, well, this is a great uh, discipline. It's, it's rigorous. It's um, sort of scientific but it deals you know fundamentally with uh you know whether societies thrive or 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 they're poor you know where prosperity comes from uh it seemed like it it would uh offer a kind of an, an opening for me to better understand the human project in general and the more i got into economics the more i discovered this whole key to uh entrepreneurship to uh, wealth creation to new uh, innovations and to a kind of a thriving life is this precious thing called human liberty, mm -hmm. which is implausible, right? You think that if you want to have, you know, a, a growing economy and, and uh, good uh, innovations, what you need is a good plan. In fact, it's just the opposite. I mean, you, you need to have as much quote unquote chaos in society as possible, which is to say you need to kind of let people just figure things out on their own. And, and I was so intrigued about that paradox that um i sort of just fell in love with it and 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 i started uh, studying and reading and writing about it and i've not stopped <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> no you haven't yet yeah this is one of the most interesting things that i think people don't grasp is that what is society and what is an economy it is the voluntary coming together of people to interact and transact right etc right that's what it's about and once you put government in the way or you force anything or you restrict anything, then people don't voluntarily make those choices. And then creativity itself is stifled, yeah. you know? It's creativity a and the creation of wealth. Now, the creation of wealth is a mysterious thing, and it always has been, because it didn't really exist in the ancient world. There's this funny moment. I was trying to find it the other day. I couldn't quite find it. But Aristotle addresses the question, how do you get rich? And he's, mm -hmm. and his answer is, well, you uh, conquer a neighbor, neighboring tribe and take their stuff. I mean, that's <laughs> well, else are going to get rough. And he even says this somewhere, like there's only a finite amount of riches in the world. So if you want to get rich yourself, you have to take it from somebody else. Well, he didn't understand this, this weird thing called rising prosperity. And uh, so that's why economics is relatively late to develop, because you need to... to uh, live in a kind of world where people were getting richer, not by other people's expense, by rather by virtue of their cooperative engagements with with other people. You know, uh, you have you you're growing uh, strawberries in your plot of land. Your neighborhood has neighbor has goats. Uh, you make a deal with him that um, if he, you know, uh, uh, has multiplies his goat. Uh, stock that uh, you'll focus on multiplying your strawberry stock and then you'll exchange and then you're both better off as a result i mean but the critical thing about that agreement is that uh, you both have to agree to respect each other's rights in the meantime right while 
while you're raising more strawberries than you can consume or why while you're raising more goats than you can use yourself and so you that sort of cooperative uh, exchange extended out of over um, geography and ever more complex uh, division of labor so now you have to have laborers working your farm and he has to have laborers feeding his goats and so on that's how society grows rich, this division of labor. But that had to actually happen in order to spawn a generation of intellectuals to kind of figure out why and how it was happening. And that's where economics was sort of burned very much uh, in the sort of late Middle Ages, and that, which is the very time that we started seeing prosperity itself being born in the world. Uh, well, I was going to say- for explanation. We also started to shift from being almost exclusively agrarian-based societies where it was more subsistence level, right, to mm -hmm. coming together and actually having, well, actually, I could have more than just, I could make more than, grow more than eggs for me or a pig for me. I could grow something more, right, and then share that, sell it, trade it, whatever. Right. And so. crucially, uh, Leslie, the uh, invention of money was quite something. Uh, what, you know, what is money? Money is a thing that you get, not because you're going to consume it, but because you anticipate that you can use it later to trade something. So uh, the invention of money was really great because, because then you didn't have to barter. It wasn't just strawberries for goats. You could, you could acquire shells and then you could, uh, then you had cost accounting. And so then you had businesses and then you could yep. pay your workers. And once workers got uh, money in their in their paw they had choices you mm -hmm. know and that, that that was never part of the feudal uh, world because you basically worked in exchange for um, a plot of land and some protection by the feudal lord right but now with money you could actually go to the markets and buy things and people could sell things because they mm -hmm. didn't have money and so that was sort of an emancipatory institution. And then and then that enabled people to travel and move to other places where they where they could actually further their uh, ambitions and actually progress. And so then, you know, late Middle Ages started getting developing this expectation, which was unusual, which is that um, in one generation, people would improve their their lot in life. And it wasn't just a matter of, being born and dying that you had something to do besides mm -hmm. just survive and and that that's that's a beautiful thing and it sort of gradually emerges you know over the centuries and then um uh you know and then the, that plays into the whole issue of uh, public health you know i mean like at some point you know the cities uh, began to fill up and then and then you had the problems of the water supply and sanitation and good hygiene all these things began to play into it um, and uh, so that's how public health and, and economics interact, you know, um, in, in some way. Uh, so that's a very good segue to my next question yeah. that I wanted to ask you about, which is this, you know, if you look over the last three years, I mean, none of us would have ever believed that we would live through this kind of, mm -hmm. <laughs> of a period. But um, the mainstream, you know, media has pushed this narrative that, you know, you either get this medical treatment to do your part, or if you don't, you're selfish, right? You're a selfish mm -hmm. pig, essentially. You're, um, you know, you're actually a pariah. And um, this notion is, you know, it really springs forth from the whole utilitarian ethic yeah. and this idea that it's okay to sacrifice a few in service to the greater good. Mm -hmm. Now, I was under the impression, obviously falsely, that that whole notion of utilitarianism had been dispensed with after mm -hmm. the Nuremberg trials and the Nuremberg Code, which found that you can never 
um, you know, experiment on human beings without their prior voluntary informed consent. And you look at that, and then you look at the Declaration of Helsinki. <clears throat> a couple of decades later, you look at the um, UNESCO Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights in 2005, and you also look at a ton of federal code and jurisprudence in the United States in recent decades, all of which support the idea that not only does ethical, um, not only do you require voluntary informed consent for medical experiments, but the mere practice of ethical medicine requires the prior voluntary informed consent of the individual. And the Supreme Court has actually ruled that the um, that the right to bodily autonomy is amongst our most sacred of human rights mm -hmm. and that we have the right to refuse medical interventions even if they could save our lives. And mm -hmm. so what I really wanna ask you is, how do you think we strayed so far from the Nuremberg Code to get to where we were at the beginning of 2020, where people thought nothing of locking us down, masking us and doing all the other ridiculous mm -hmm. things they did, tracing and, all of this stuff, which just defies, if you ask me, the last right. 75 years of history. They didn't, they, there was never part of the official pandemic plans that we would lock down and have vaccine mandates, uh, especially especially a untested uh, technology vaccine that 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 we that would never promised to keep you uninfected, never promised to stop transmission. You read the EUA, it never promised any of that stuff. <laughs> In fact, I think it only promised like that it would delay um, severe outcomes for like two weeks, or I forget now what the EUA said. It was just like very minimalist uh, kind of promises. But so the, the thing is that a lot of people did not anticipate any of this stuff would, could ever uh, happen because it wasn't part of the official pandemic plans. The problem is that there was this um, a, a sort of a cabal that had been gradually developing since about 2005 of lockdown mandating uh, sort of ideology that um, that they really believed that they would enact a central plan uh, based on on bioterrorism or something like that from some foreign country, and that quickly and that's that really began in 2005, and then that mutated very quickly to oh if there's a a germ on the loose you know which they thought avian bird flu was going to be that in 2006, but George Bush was hopping around going ah we're gonna we're gonna lock down you know don't worry the government's going to deliver your groceries and we'll invent a vaccine, and the and the world's expert on the avian bird flu you know. To spoke to the press at the time. What do you think, uh, Doctor So and So? Well, I'm afraid that half of humanity is going to die. And then they, and then, and then they asked Fauci at the time. They're like, "Well, this guy's the world's expert on the avian bird flu. Says that half humanity is going to die." They asked Fauci. He goes, "Well, you know, it's not a bad point because, um, as far as I know, we, uh, well, there have been two cases. Uh, one of them died, so that's half." Yes. So this 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 all happened in 2006. So these these these, and that's the same time pandemic planning was invented with the social distancing models and all this nonsense. And Bill Gates got fascinated by this. He's like, "Oh, that's really interesting." You know, um, I've been battling viruses on my software, you know, for uh, ever since I invented Windows, and so now we're going to battle viruses in the human population too. So the guy's like a complete idiot. You know, there's absolutely no relationship. I mean, the word we use the virus, the word virus in computer world is a metaphor. Exactly. Uh, and he never learned anything about actual viruses, although he could have very simply downloaded a book on cell biology from. Amazon, you know, like any normal person might do, but he's too much of a fool to do that. Instead, he used his billions to to buy out medical departments and journals and epidemiologists and the World Health Organization, everything else. 
based on his bad theory. And that perpetuated things. So, you know, and we were already ready to, they were ready to, to deploy this nonsense already in 2009, right? For H1N1. They did. Uh, well, they didn't actually. I mean, they kind of prepared. Well, they for- they did part of it in that they gave six or seven billion dollars to state health departments to do their bidding, push the shots. And oh. they did this despite the fact that there was virtually no cases. There were virtually no cases oh. and this was documented by Cheryl Atkinson. She actually I don't know if you know this, but basically this is very fascinating. She um, Cheryl Atkinson was still working for CBS at the time, and she mm-hmm. went and she requested the data from the CDC asking them for their um, the data that they had documenting the number of cases, the number of tests and the number of cases wow. that were testing positive. And, but, but not anticipating that CDC wouldn't oblige, she had her team go to every single state health department and they got the state health department test results. And do you know what she found? That only somewhere between like one and six or 7% of, t- of cases or of um, tests were actually positive. The vast majority were negative, and there was no, there was no epidemic. There was no outbreak that was of any material um, concern to anyone. Right. And yet, two months later, President Obama still went and declared an emergency. Oh, so it was literally, and this is documented. I can show you this stuff. I mean, I was, you know, I've been involved in this stuff for years, and um, it was all a lie. And if you look at this, I mean. Um, Dare I say, I hope you don't mind, but I think we're about six weeks apart, Jeffrey. I just had my birthday last week. And um, um, the reason I bring it up is because when we were kids, I was not thinking all the time. I had no concern about infectious diseases. I wasn't concerned about getting any illnesses. There were no problems. And that went all the way until the early 2000s when we had the first avian, well, no, we had SARS in 03, 02, 03. Right. You had SARS in 03, 02, 03. You had avian, you had Ebola, you had Zika. You had all of a sudden the last 20 years have been just nonstop disease. One one fear after another. And it's ironic because, uh, well, let me put it this way. Infectious disease has never vexed humanity as little as it does today. I mean, you know, 19th century and before infectious disease was a major threat. Uh, but it's it actually has not been for a you know for a good part of you know since World War II. It's actually a very minor yeah. problem, and it's just funny that we're in this weird situation. But the less of a problem something is, the more we're concerned about it. You know, I mean, it's like well, I think I read it as a different way. How is it that we've had all of these supposed disease outbreaks that have been literally plastered all over every single mainstream media outlet in the last 20 years. But for the preceding 20 years, there were none. That mm-hmm. doesn't make sense to me. That that smacks of fabrication in my view. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but it just doesn't make sense. It yeah. does not add up. Well, and they keep saying that, well, don't forget, I mean, Bill, Bill Gates did, you know, countless TED Talks and things saying, a pandemic is coming. It's coming. We're going to, the new pathogen's on its way, you know, and it's like, what are you talking about? Actually? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, unless you're making this stuff in a lab or uh, something, you know, I mean, that's, that's actually not likely. You know, we have better immune systems now than any people in the whole of human history because we've been exposed to more pathogens than anybody. It's the point that people overlook, you know, like after World War One, uh, when we got exposure for the for the world, it, it actually you know our immune system scaled, and in in ways that uh, were uh, enormously beneficial to uh, 
to uh, vital statistics. You know, that's when we started getting really uh, living such a very long time and thriving. You know, completely through through exposure. And and by the way, uh, long before vaccines, right? I mean, vaccines, universalization of vaccines, really comes about on all these other things. You know, basically following World War II, but you know, mostly. Uh, uh, the 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 problems of infectious disease had had been largely sort of, in a population wide sense, conquered uh, over the previous uh, fifty years. Yeah, you know, Geyer et al. published a study in uh, two, I think it was June of two thousand, um, reviewing the annual vital statistics of the United States U.S. data going back to the beginning of I think to the Civil War, and what they found and concluded was that. 89% of the decline in infectious disease mortality in the United States occurred before the advent or widespread use of either antibiotics or vaccines. Mm -hmm. And if you just look specifically at the measles vaccine, for instance, that thing was rolled out in 1963. Mm -hmm. In the first two decades of the um, century, you had roughly 10 to 20,000 people dying every year in the United States from measles. Mm. But by 1958 through 1962, Guess how many deaths there were every year in the United States from measles? Four hundred and thirty. That was it. And yet they introduced the vaccine the next year, and they say that it saved millions of lives. Right. It's just it just does not add up. We have been we've not been told the whole truth about this issue, but we could go down that rabbit hole. (laughs) Right. I mean that's that's you know. But uh, one book I I highly recommend that um, because I read it recently that I really liked. Um, just for its history of public health over the last 200 years is, is a book called Turtles All the Way Down, which, uh, it, it, and the, it's anonymous, but, it, you know, the rumor is that it's by two, two Israeli doctors, but it's very brilliantly written and very compelling history of, of uh, public health over, over 200 years. And, uh, and it, like, even if you're not interested in, in the, the vaccine portion of it, um, just to, to understand the contribution that sanitation and 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 hygiene uh, and the cleaning up of the cities, getting rid of the horses and the and the and the and the, and the horseshoe nails on the streets that gave gave people tetanus and so on. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, just that aspect of the story by itself is something that people should have. And by the way, I think the book came out in 2019. I mean, if, if there had been widespread readership of this book, nobody would have bought into this mm-hmm. ridiculous, preposterous pandemic response, yeah. which ironically has collapsed public health in this country. I mean, we are, we are, we are uh, <laughs> in, in a disaster uh, right now in terms of obesity and alcoholism. And we've lost three years of life expectancy in two um, I mean, it's it's just and not to mention, you know, the psychological maladies, the depression and the, you know, the suicides. Completely. And it's just it's it's been uh, the excess deaths over um, 2021, 2022 are blowing out of the water. Everything that happened in 2020. So it's not yes. COVID that's killing yes. people. You know, it's it's no. the response to COVID. So, you know, isn't it? I want to clarify something. When I cheered, it wasn't any of the deaths, injuries, comorbidities, people no, who've been displaced. Point, it was about the, I think that it's a positive thing that our public health um, officials be taken down or rung because I think they have way too much um, deference by the public in general right. and way too much power and authority. And I think that needs to be clipped. So that's what but, I was cheering. Just Leslie, to, 
just but, for any of our viewers who thought well, I was cheering all that you were going to say. The, the point is that they set out to, uh, in the name of public health, to improve our health. They destroyed it. I mean, Very much that, so. that is an, an amazing thing. I mean, to, in the name of public health, we're going to save you from this bug that's on the loose, you know, this the invisible enemy, mm. hide, uh, uh, don't go to the gym, drink yourself to death. And 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 look what happened. I mean, I mean public health has never been in worse shape than when we gave public health dictatorship over our lives. I mean, that is the bottom line, bitter truth. And somebody needs to, you know, be honest with the public at this point. This is why, you know, this is why people like to read Brownstone, right? Because we we talk about this stuff every day. And they're and they're 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 they're, they're like a site for therapy. I mean, people. Uh, you know, they're looking at the evidence of their eyes and they're saying, well, look, Walensky and Fauci and the rest of you people, my county health, public health agency, you people are liars. Look what you did. Yeah. Look what you did to my life. Look at how much they lie about chicken pox. I mean, for goodness sake, when we were kids, everybody got chicken pox. My brother, sister and I flew on an mm -hmm. airplane with chicken pox over the holidays. It was not an issue. And nowadays you're supposed to quarantine if you get the chicken pox. We've, oh, is that they, right? They have been abused. Yes, they don't want you to go anywhere or do anything. And they've pushed the vaccine on the children, even though it's literally a benign, I believe, um, health promoting infection to get because these we do know that some of these diseases actually protect us from chronic inflammatory diseases and even cancer. Well, and so I just feel like what's happening is when you look at that, you also look at um, the USDA, the power it wields, the war against saturated fat, which was totally misguided and proven to be wrong decades yeah. after it. Mm -hmm. Look at all these things that they push on us. Oh, and yeah. I think we we really have to get to a place where, like, did you see the Newsweek op-ed that came out from this guy, Kevin? Um, mm -hmm. I forget what his last name is. Um, like yeah. Jansen or something like that. But anyway, he, um, he talks all about, you know, mea culpa and we overstepped and we did this and we did that and blah, blah, blah. The problem is that I believe we have a cult of medicine in this country, and I believe it's a carefully crafted, nurtured cult. That's why we have stethoscopes in all their pictures and white um, lab coats. And you could even argue the title. Who else, get, who else goes around calling themselves doctor or something else, right? right. This is about creating separation between every man and those people. And I think it's because it's about power and authority. And once yeah. you create that separation, then it's much easier to tell people what to do and they're much more likely to defer. And so to me, we really need to sort of dismantle this whole, the, the cult of medicine and go back to a place where it's an even playing field. We do not need government. And in fact, government has actually been weaponized against us and against yeah. all of the holistic and ancient healing arts from homeopathy to chiropractic to acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And these things, things are incredibly yeah. helpful, useful. I raised my son exclusively on homeopathy, Jeffrey, exclusively. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the healthiest kids you'll ever see. And yeah. um, anyway, I think that that's a really... Homeopathy goes all the way back to the flexion report of 1912 or something like that. It's been going on a very long time. Uh, just to slight, slightly back up on the chi on the chickenpox point, I, I, you know, it's funny that the... Um, I, I have a, a friend of mine who's puzzled about the lack of understanding in the public mind towards the role of exposure in creating immunities and 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 why 
getting sick is not always, you know, the worst thing that ever happens to you. Sometimes, you know, having a naive immune system is the worst thing that ever happened to you. Um, and he's, he asked me, he said, do you think it was because of the invention of the chickenpox vaccine? And I thought, well, that's really interesting uh, because it really is true that when I was a kid, the first person to get chickenpox was the most popular person. Forget quarantine. I mean, <laughs> that person was guaranteed to have a chickenpox party. Guaranteed. All, and everybody in the community, mean, I mean, everybody in the community would, you know, for miles around, would bring their kids to be exposed to the chickenpox as early as possible. And it was something that you got. And it was a great, I would say, like pedagogical experience for people because, you know, you're seven years old and you suddenly have these dots breaking out all over you and your parents are <laughs> thrilled, you know, and you're itching them. They're like, don't scratch. It's going to go in. It's a congratu congratulating you. You're miserable. Your parents are happy for you. And it like creates it from a very young age, the age of, of seven, eight, whatever, it creates a kind of a puzzle and, and it creates a teaching moment. So that's when your parents come to you and say, listen, the earlier you get this, uh, the better off you are because there's less chance for scarring and you're going to develop lifetime immunity. So it's something we all go through. And, and so you developed a sense of, I don't know, like pride or totally. the, the paradox of exposure leading to greater health is impressed upon people. And that was true for, I would say for most uh, people in the 20th century until uh, chickenpox vaccine became uh, the thing. And, and, and I don't know when that happened Is in the eighties or the nineties, something like that, or you probably know, but I was, <laughs> Yeah, but I was I was mortified when that happened. I thought, well, um, when I got to it's, getting chickenpox for me was a very important formative moment because I began to realize that sickness is not the enemy. We do a, 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 a delicate dance with with pathogens, but exposure is sometimes the quite often the best possible approach uh, you could ever have. And I learned that, and everybody learned that because chickenpox was our teacher. So when we got the vaccine, it's like, oh, here's your shot. Well, we fostered this attitude that the goal is always to stay away, stay away, stay away, stay isolated, keep away from the pathogens no matter what, uh, always rely on the shots, always rely on the pills, always rely on the experts in the, in the white coats. Uh, your, your parents don't know anything about medicine. You don't know anything about medicine. Only the experts can tell you what, and it's because they have access to their special potions. And so that was the, that was the message that several generations have gotten, you know? And, and, and so when, when SARS-CoV-2 came along, uh, you know, and the government was saying, socially distance, stay away from it. It's very bad. It's going to hurt you. A lot of people believed it. Because yeah. they didn't, they didn't know otherwise. No, exactly. Been... You know, when we were both born in the early '60s, and before that happened, before the early '60s, yes, they were having chickenpox parties, but they were also having measles parties. Yes, and there were other things. It, people did not live in fear of disease. I don't know. I mean, I I licked people's popsicle sticks. We shared ice creams. We drank out of the same Coke bottle. Right. No one was afraid of disease. Right. No one was afraid of 
of germs. Of course, if someone, if you didn't like somebody, then you could say that they had cooties, but that was a different that's thing. That's a childhood game, right? That's a childhood game. That's not, a, that's not public policy. That's no. not, right? Like, I can't believe we took the cooties game and, and globalized it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but listen, uh, it's also what you were actually afraid of was too much cleanliness, right? And that was actually because there was a um, a perception that developed in the 1940s and 50s and 60s that 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 polio itself was uh, concentrated on on populations that actually were too sanitized, too clean, too yeah. hyg hygienic, and that sort of thing. And that's a controversial issue, or whatever. I'm just telling you that that was the perception. You need to let the kid play out in the mud. You need as much exposure as possible. You know, but really, by by the turn of the 21st century, we started having this movement where everybody's boiling their pacifiers and cleaning everything, and it was a, and and yeah, and I mean, that, use a plastic cutting board, not wood, even though wood actually is better. But that's what they did and sanitize everything. And you know, there was like Lysol and oh, all this stuff. Yeah. So listen, we could go on this so deeply, but I want to ask you some other important stuff, right? It's, it it's is. all about worldview and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and this is what's really where the fundamentally, about, the problem is when people make these errors in science, they play into despotic ambitions from a very bad tyrannical people. And that's what happened in this case. Ignorance led to but I don't think it was just COVID, Jeffrey. And this is where I disagree with you. I don't think it was just COVID. They've been doing this for decades. And I would say that if you go from the Bayh-Dole Act when, in 1980, when they allowed the um, uh, you know federal scientists to retain the intellectual property rights to what they developed off of taxpayer backs, that was a problem. Then in 1992, you had the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, which allowed the pharmaceutical industry to literally pay the FDA to fast track their drugs. And now they completely own it. These all things happen. And I think the whole vaccine program yeah. as well, There's this is part of the problem. And the reason I say that is because if you look back as far as 2009, 2010, 2011, they were already starting to take away exemptions to vaccines in California, mm. a full-blown war had already broken out with the state and parents. And I think that this whole idea that really started many, many years ago, that disease is to be feared, that bugs are to be feared, they realized, oh, this is something we can weaponize against mm -hmm. the people. We can sell all sorts of hand sanitizer and anti this and anti that and da da da, -da and vaccines. And, and remember, vaccines aren't just sold to sick people. They're sold to the addressable, to the whole population, which means that instead of having, you know, people who have asthma or people who have one little thing, you get the whole population to do it. And then they do it without any liability. So I think it's a far longer view mm. agenda than just COVID. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But let's set that aside because I do want to ask you this specifically. You are someone who thinks about liberty. It's your passion. It's what you do. So how do you think about health freedom, bodily autonomy, and our other inalienable rights? Like this ties into the conversation we're having about public health, but right. To me, you know, I you 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 hear so many people shouting from the rooftops, free speech, free speech, and I just want to go bodily autonomy. <laughs> right. Because if we don't, I mean, I don't know. I'd rather have bodily autonomy than free speech. I think they're right. inextricably linked, but to me, it's more fundamental. But how do you think about that? Uh one of the major problems we encountered over 2020, 20, 21, and even now is that this issue of public health, history of public health, bodily autonomy 
and and medicine in general has uh, been outsourced to to specialists, right? I mean, so um, it's it's like you know even scholars in the area of of economics and and politics and other natural sciences are told to stay away from these issues because they can't possibly understand it. We have to leave that to the epidemiologists and the and to the scientific uh, establishment. So. It was really catastrophic. So my tribe has traditionally been these people we uh, call libertarians, right? And um, big L, small L, doesn't matter. Uh, almost universally, they flopped and failed on all questions of, of public health since 2020 because they they thought it wasn't their business. That it, it's, it's not really anything I know anything about. So just go along with what the experts say. Well, that was a catastrophic decision. So it left people like you and me and, and not too many others to, uh, to, to be strong, you know, advocates of uh, leaving us alone in the name of uh, human liberty, human rights, and, in the, and, public, and good public health, right? So that, but that, but, but, but like there's no sense in which you can authentically think about subjects of, of human rights or market freedom or any of the things you associate with a free society without seriously confronting the problems of infectious disease, bodily autonomy, and, and, and medical rights and medical freedom. Those, they have to go together. And we should know that by now. Like our failure to unite those things really had very grim consequences for the U.S. and for the world. It's really interesting when you look, you know, you listen to these people who say, well, actually, the legislation in California where they tried to outlaw doctors from deviating from the state narrative and all of the censorship that's happened in the last few years. This is why I say it's a long term agenda, because this stuff didn't come up overnight. Right. Parents have been I mean, the term anti-vaxxer didn't exist very long ago. Um, people who chose a different path. You know, when we were kids, we didn't get any, any vaccines to go to college. None of us. There was no question it wasn't even asked and now there's all this stuff that's dictated by the state it's such a um it's such a complex and very very interesting development i think in our lives and it's concurrent with this sort of fear the bug fear the disease and then also all of these outbreaks right be afraid be very very afraid because they realize that fear is what well, that's allows right. and them the to more, do what they want it's interesting about these these outbreaks and we're seeing this now uh, the less exposure, natural exposure we have to pathogens, the more vulnerable uh, we get uh, to uh, other infections. You know, it's very, this is a, a, in part what accounts for why we're so sick right now. Because mm -hmm. just so many people isolated for so long. Um, I just took a trip to Mexico and been thinking a lot about um, the history of the encounter between the Spanish colonial powers and the native population. Um, uh, maybe as many as half of the native population of Mexico and, and other countries uh, were wiped out and yeah. with various pathogens and exposure. Mm -hmm. So that's just a, a, a catastrophe. But it could happen to anybody. I mean, it could happen to any tribe in isolation if 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 you're experiencing a lack of exposure, you know, and it could happen to us again. And you're just like this crazy woman, Ardun, um, in New Zealand. Who thought she was going to like keep her little island protected from SARS-CoV-2? It's, it's the worst thing you could ever do. I mean, yeah. what are they going to do? Stay like an isolated tribe in the Amazon for the next thousand years? It was it was insane. 
Yeah. And then it's also just ignoring. I mean, children have developmental leaps after they've had an acute illness. Like I said, infection with certain infectious diseases actually results in us having a higher immunity to cancer and other chronic problems. I mean, it's just this idea that we should be at war with our environment is one of the most misguided ideas ever invented, but it sells a lot of products and it keeps people patients and in fear. And so they're controllable. And that's why I say, I think it's much deeper than just, I don't think it's just profit, you know? Um, So, I mean, (laughs) the elephant in the room here really, Jeffrey, is that our system is broken. Don't you think that's fair to say? Uh, it's tremendously broken and trust is lost. So yeah. So I, so what I want to ask you is it's, it's obvious to me it's broken and we need, you know, I mean, Klaus and his buddies want a great reset. And I mean, listen, I agree with him that we need a reset. I just have a completely different vision for what it's going to look like on the other side. But do you think the system that we has today have today in this country is irretrievably broken? Do you think there's something we can do about it? And what would be your vision? Well, actually, just let's ask that first. So do you think it's beyond beyond? Well, when you say the system, I, I assume that you mean the the health and medical system? Well, I think it's far worse than that. I mean, listen, Congress doesn't do its job anymore. You've got war between these two parties, supposedly, but they always seem to go in the same direction over time. Question of breakage. So, what? What you know? The question is, what's broken? I mean, no question. Of CDC and NIH, uh, uh, but our political system is broken in the sense that we used to believe that we elected people who were uh, would represent our interests in Washington. It's not clear how much power, if any, they have anymore, <clears throat> given the the um, administrative state <clears throat> which you've been battling. Um, you also have a problem with the inter- entertain uh, the entanglements with media, and and big tech, and you mentioned earlier the intellectual property regime. So all these things are sort of fitting together, and then you have the sort of global elites, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that that are working with these nonprofit foundations and things like that, and the World Health Organization. So things are are really very seriously broken on a global level. So it's, it's very. Uh, overwhelming to consider just how bad things have gotten, and I, I and I like to think that you know people have sort of partially woken up as a result um, of of the experience of the last three years. Um, but I'm not sure yet. I think we've we're going to go through a very long period now in which this sort of brokenness is going to give give way to something new. What that next something is, is still up for grabs. This is why I think joining the intellectual battle right now is so enormously important. Yeah. Thankfully, I think people are more engaged than they've ever been in a very long time. Um, So that's a positive. But, you know, if you had to prioritize, if there were three things that you think that we could change, which would fundamentally alter the trajectory that we're on, what would those be? I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but, you know, if in in all of your reading and all of your um, research, what do you think is most critical for us to fix at this point? Uh, well, uh, one thing is I'd like to see healthcare untie, uh, untangled from employment 
Uh, that's that's really important because right now people are stuck in the jobs because of fear of the healthcare and the healthcare the, their access to healthcare makes them dependent and they, you know they so that you know they pay their copays or in back and forth the doctor they create this kind of dependency uh, situation mm-hmm. and it all plays into each other it gets people stuck in bad jobs and and they don't understand what they're paying so so we need to be able to pay our own healthcare uh, health insurance we need greater choice. In the options that are available to us in our healthcare, um, that uh, not just some central plan from Washington, like here's your package, gold, silver, whatever they offer, it's all just terrible and outrageous, and there's no prices on it. So you know we really do need to have a more of a normal sort of market uh, for for healthcare. I think that's that's I don't know how we get there, but. Um, we've got to untie it from the the present mm-hmm. uh, system with these copays through through employment. It's just it's outrageous. That's got to be one. I'd like to see some uh, the removal of liability prote- protections for for these uh, for these shots. I think it's really uh, important that that you can't really have a credible system or a trustworthy system when large companies like Pfizer and Moderna. Are essentially indemnified from from damages for that they cause. You know that's yeah. just that's terrible. Uh, the other thing is uh, these vaccine mandates. I think are extremely dangerous. And uh, not only should we never toy with uh, passports again. You know we segregated New York City and New Orleans and Boston in in ways that fell along racial lines. By the way, and nobody cared. You know, so that should never be allowed to happen again. But really, we need to get rid of like all mandates um, at uh, every institution. And I really approve of what uh, many governors have done, which is just basically to do their best to abolish them in all businesses and say businesses cannot do that. Um, uh, And and, uh, I don't believe the businesses should be even allowed to ask uh, about vaccines. I think that's a really important thing. So those three things would really take us a very long way to at least addressing the most obvious problems. Mm And when you say um, vaccines, do you mean all vaccines, no mandates, or do you mean just the COVID shots? Uh, I I think it's a slippery slope, right? I mean, you you permit one. And uh, the one that the Jacobson decision of the Supreme Court said it was permitted to mandate was the smallpox vaccine. Well, presumably, they say that that one's eradicated. So, you know... um, uh, that one is no longer a pertinent, pertinent issue. We handled measles just fine before. I don't know anything about rebellion, but I just, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't see any case for these like vaccines. If they're if 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 they're good and people love them and they really can serve a, a great public service or a private and public service on their own, uh, people should be open to being persuaded. But yeah, you know. Uh, there's if no circumstances under which anybody should be forced into getting a, a, taking a product they don't want. Yeah, I, I think anything that has to be forced on you is probably not a good idea, right? If it can't sell itself, right, then it's not I, something that I want. The, the COVID vaccines were implausible from the very beginning. We knew for sure from early 2020 that there was a huge gradient of risk. The, the idea that working healthy working age people needed to have a vaccine against COVID was always preposterous. And when the and when the trials began to roll out and people were enrolling from you know the age of seventeen or whatever healthy people in these trials, what the hell? That yeah. was already <clears throat> obvious that something had gone very wrong. They were testing it on the wrong people. 
So yes. it, it was it was the whole thing was a hoax and a fraud from the very beginning. Yes. As I've said since the beginning, it's not about public health and it's never been about public health. Nope. It's always about something else. Power, money, control, you know, nope. for right. sure. I'm 100 percent with you about the whole mandate issue, because to me. You know, many states will pass exemptions, but what they give us, they can take it away. That's what they try and do. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happened in California. They started out on a slippery slope. They started out and they passed. I think it was called. A, B, I can't remember what it was, um, what the number was, but it was um, something that would um, allow school, allow children as young as 12 to get the hepatitis B or the Gardasil vaccine without parental consent or knowledge. And they said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to intrude on family rights. We're not going to do this or that. This is just a a one-off. And then that was literally the tip of the spear. And they went all the way till in 2019, they took away all vaccine exemptions. And so to me, I own my body. The state doesn't own my body. No one will ever tell me what to put in it. And that's how we we have to have that recognition, that appreciation on a societal level. And it has to be codified in law once again. You know, I agree. That's just a a matter of living in a free society. Yeah, we've we've, I don't even agree with the Jacobson decision. Well, I didn't want to go into too much of it, but, you know, Jacobson allowed a fine to be paid. It did not allow the state to inject, to plunge a needle into your arm, as Alan Dershowitz says. That's just false. That's one thing. Secondly, smallpox had a death rate of 30 to 40 percent. Perhaps you could argue something there, but even I I disagree with that, especially because the smallpox shots, we have not been told the whole story about that. I won't go into detail on it, but let's just say that there have been instances like in England where they had vaccinated 98% 98% of the population, and they had the worst smallpox outbreak ever. Mm-hmm. And I believe that it was twice as deadly as it had been hitherto. So it's we're not told the whole story on that or polio for that matter. But the biggest point is that if the government can tell you what to put in your body, then you're nothing more That's than a slave, yeah. that you're, you're chattel or cattle. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just you're not. Many people have experienced enormous psychological abuse over the last two years being forced to take these medicines that they didn't want and yeah. there's plenty of people that wake up screaming in the middle of the night remembering that moment when the jab went in and oh. they were forced to do it and it's yes uh leslie i yes. i i fortunately i have to let i have to end the interview and uh so maybe we can do it again and another point i would love it thank you so much for being with us jeffrey it's yeah, been so absolutely fantastic short, no 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 i was actually going to ask you one last question so it's perfect we'll leave okay. it there okay all right thank you so much leslie bye-bye